also, can I second the fact that you want to ask questions about this and uh, maybe weren't directed to the easiest place to ask those questions? Oh, when you were put in a room. Oh. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I just said it too bluntly right now. Put, put in the corner. They did put me in a little room alone <laughs> before one of the events. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, a judge has recommended NOLA public schools move into a probationary period after operating under a federal consent decree regarding special education, but some argue the problems haven't been resolved. A committee in charge of deciding a health care contract for the New Orleans jail decided to stick with the provider who's had the contract for the last eight years over multiple objections. And a bill that would eliminate co-payments for people incarcerated in Louisiana prisons for their health care was discussed at the legislature this week, but they deferred action on that bill for now. NBA legend Magic Johnson was in town to promote a proposed multi-million dollar deal that, among other initiatives, would create a city-directed but privately owned internet provider to address the digital divide, but the specifics are scanty. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Lens editor Charles Maldonado is also here. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up in schools for the last eight years, the State Department of Education and local NOLA public schools have been under a federal consent decree for special education service problems. In 2010, the Southern Poverty Law Center filed a lawsuit on behalf of 10 families, alleging that the city's charter schools were admitting too few special needs students and failing to provide proper services to the ones they did enroll. Now a judge has recommended the entities move forward by policing themselves something the plaintiff's attorneys argue is not enough. How did we get where we are today? So yeah, the, the schools have been operating under a consent decree for the last um, seven, eight years, basically, where federal court established reasons and roles that they would be monitored for in special education services. And if they were not meeting those marks, they would be analyzed every year. And that isn't quite happening, the plaintiff's attorneys, Southern Poverty Law Center, um, say it isn't quite happening. So they they want them to keep coming in and they don't want this to yet end. Yeah, and what? so what did they find? Yeah, I mean, basically every single year, these schools are continuing to, to violate and not follow federal special education law in terms of identifying students who need special education services and also in terms of providing the special education services. So they, they're not quite meeting the mark on either bar there. That continues to happen all of the time. Like right now we have 10, 10 of the 80 or so schools are still under corrective action plans from the state because they failed to meet those services. The consent decree itself sort of provides a mechanism or a series of mechanisms for identifying problems and putting, putting those problem schools into some sort of an intervention. But the consent decree is kind of silent on, you know, you have to achieve these, you know, specific results of, you know, providing, uh, you know, providing the proper services and, and uh, you know, getting enough kids enrolled and everything. So the way that the, uh, the, the defendants, the school system sees it is that we're doing what the consent decree is, says we're supposed to be doing, which is, which is you know, identif- identifying the problems um, and putting them into some sort of plan. The plaintiffs are saying, well, 
the entire point of this was not just to create a new level of bureaucracy, it was to actually fix the underlying issue. So what's the judge recommending now? The judge is recommending they go into a, quote, probationary period, which um, basically would allow them to follow their own kind of special education monitoring plans. But the SPLC doesn't think that is enough because they're saying that's kind of what they have already done for the last however many years and it it doesn't work. including Charles and I, we reported on a, I think two years ago, they, they monitored the wrong schools. Like they literally put all the schools in a spreadsheet, did a calculation. They somehow calculated wrong and they monitored the wrong schools. <laughs> well, and and the, the, tru- the, the extra troubling thing about that was when Marta says the wrong schools, which oh, yeah. means <laughs> is they have these series of measurements outlined in the consent decree that, that sort of say, if a school is doing or not doing X, then that's a problem. So they mistakenly monitored schools that shouldn't have been red flagged by the consent decree measurements. But even though those schools, you know, under the measurements seem to be performing fine, when they did the monitoring, they still found problems there. The SPLC attorneys absolutely argue that they should stay under this consent decree. Um, Their other argument, which I think is I'm going to go ahead and just say probably fair is that they don't have data from the last two years from during the time we've been in COVID. So Mm. if there was anyone who was likely to be affected by virtual schooling or left behind, like students with special education needs are are high up on the list there. So, so this is a podcast. You can't see my face. The listeners can't anyway, but I have a pretty bemused look on my face. I'd say, what is the rationale to move into this probationary period then if all these problems continue I believe in the consent decree, it's that if they had no finding for three years in a row, they can move out from under the consent decree. And they had, you know, they did not have serious findings in terms of monitoring and what the protocols that the monitor set up. But like what Charles is saying is that they're still identifying special education issues in schools. It's just that the monitoring process is going properly. Um, Mm. I think people can see both sides of the argument there. The education entities want to be out from under this process, but parents of special education students and, you know, people who generally care for education uh, think it is too soon to move out from the monitoring process. Yeah, and I would say beyond that, I mean, you know, consent, I don't know the exact financial arrangements here, but I would say, uh, you know, generally speaking, consent decrees are pretty expensive. You know, at the very least, they're, they're you know, they're paying lawyers. They're, there's also, you know, they, they want to be able to say, um, especially, you know, especially in a a parent choice based school district where, where, you know, schools are competing with each other for students. um, They want to say that, that, you know, none of our schools are, are still being examined by this monitor, these monitors um, for special education problems. And they want to say that this district has come out of this consent decree and is, you know, now deemed fit to, to, to run its run its own affairs without a federal judge looking over its shoulder. So what happens next? So this would still need to be approved by a judge, I believe, is the next steps. But right now we're kind of in this middle period. The SPLC wanted to formally object to this recommendation, but they were denied that um, by Judge Zaney. Um, and I believe learning a little more legal lingo this week, um, you know, it's because this, this case was technically settled in 2015 or 2014 went into place in 2015 so the judge doesn't have to give them the space to object but 
the SPLC still thinks that um, they should be under federal monitors. Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Nick, over objections from advocates and public defenders, a committee in charge of deciding a health care contract for the New Orleans jail decided to stick with the provider who's had the contract for the last eight years. That's Wellpath, the largest private corrections health care company in the country. Why did they decide to stick with Wellpath? There were only two bidders for this massive health care contract for the jail. It was, it was Wellpath, who holds it now, and then, then LSU's Health Sciences Center. So really, the committee didn't have a lot of options to choose from in the, in the first place. And a couple of weeks ago, they had they had a selection committee meeting where uh, the committee raised some questions about L- LSU's proposal. LSU's proposal heavily focused on, on mental health care at the jail. And the, the person presenting the proposal was, was the chair of the psychiatry department at LSU, um, but really had very little details about sort of the, the clinical care, the physical uh, health care that, that people would receive at the jail. And so the committee had had some some questions about that, and you know the person presenting for LSU kind of said, "We'll we'll, we'll we can figure these things out," and and you know we're we're still kind of working through it. But when it came down to to vote, um, you know, this week, I think that those questions hadn't really been resolved yet. Um, Wellpath obviously has been you know running healthcare in the jail for the last they've been doing it for the last eight years, so they do have you know, regardless of criticisms, and there were a lot, and we can get into them, but they do have kind of systems in place and and kind of a full-fledged idea of how it works. So I think the committee, when they looked at those two proposals, uh, you know, I think they felt like they couldn't go forward with LSU until they had had more kind of assurances on how some of these things would, would work, and the Wellpath proposal was, was there and kind of ready to go. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a a fair amount of you know enthusiasm from some quarters about LSU Health Sciences Center submitting a proposal for this. Um, I know incoming sheriff Susan Hudson has always been interested in going with a new contractor. I think I think many others were happy at the idea that we're talking about a uh, a public entity, you know, a state entity as opposed to a, uh, a private for-profit entity mm-hmm. in, in, the, in, the, in Wellpath, which is uh, you know, the largest prison healthcare contractor in the country. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty much what Nick described. I was hearing at, at the meeting, you know, they went through a series of public comments, which were uniformly critical of the services Wellpath has provided over the past eight years. There have been several wrongful death lawsuits uh, related to medical care filed over the past couple of years here and in other jurisdictions where Wellpath works. There have been criticisms from the federal monitor. We, you know, we're talking about another consent decree, of course, because this is New Orleans. There were criticisms from the federal monitors about, you know, lack of staffing, particularly, uh, er, and, and particularly lack of behavioral health services. But, um, one of the committee members, I can't remember who it was, you know, just said, at the end of the day, this process is about evaluating the proposal that's in front of us. And while we recognize that there are very serious concerns and criticisms about WellPath's, um, about WellPath's services, uh, WellPath had, the, uh, had, had a more complete response to the city's uh, request for proposals. And one of the committee members kind of said at, at one point, or they noted that of course, they have a better proposal. This is this is Wellpath's entire business. They, you know, bidding on public contracts is what this company does, and you know, LSU is not really in that business. So, uh, 
one element, one the major element was the lack of details in the LSU proposal. I would imagine, though this wasn't discussed, that a, a pretty big secondary element was um, the cost dif difference between the two. WellPath um, is keeping its contract about the same. It's been about $18.6 million a year. It's going up to 19 in this new proposal um, up and up to 22 by year five, should they stay on for the full five years. Whereas the LSU proposal was about $30 million right. per year. So that certainly must have been a consideration as well. In a previous podcast, we discussed a bill that had been introduced at the legislature to eliminate co-payments for people incarcerated in Louisiana prisons. It came up this week for debate, what happened well, give us a little background again on what it was uh, proposing. Yeah, so right now in Louisiana prisons, in order for someone who, who's incarcerated to get um, health care, they need to pay a, a copay. So that for a prescription, for instance, it, it's $2 for sort of a sick call. I believe it's $3 and then an emergency visit, I, I think is $6. I could have those those slightly mixed up, but it's it's 2 3 and 6 And... What this what this bill would do is would eliminate these copays, and it doesn't seem like maybe a lot of money um, to to someone on the outside, but but prisoners in Louisiana can make as, as little as just a few cents an hour um, working working their jobs in, in prison. So three dollars can be I, I think someone calculated it at the meeting is something like nine days of work. So what what advocates are arguing is is you know, these co-pays are sort of putting a barrier to healthcare in, in prisons, which they are already arguing is is inadequate um, and, and forcing people who are incarcerated to sort of choose between, you know, going to the doctor or maybe getting a, a bite to eat from, from the commissary. So this bill would, would have eliminated the, those co-pays. And they took it up and what they decide? Well, they didn't vote on it. Basically, what's what's going on is the, the sponsor of the bill and the advocates who are kind of pushing for it are going to negotiate with the Department of Corrections. A lawyer for the Department of Corrections was at the meeting and, and basically said, you know, we're we're sort of willing to to discuss reducing some of these copays and trying to work on this issue, but they didn't seem willing to sort of eliminate them altogether and. There wasn't a, a kind of a full-fledged discussion of, of their reasoning, but basically what the the lawyer for the department said was were they that they were worried about sort of abuse of of kind of free access to to medical care and that that people in prison would sort of constantly making sick calls and and doing emergency visits. She was very quick to say that that this that this wasn't representative of the whole prison population and that these were limited issues, but she also said that basically they have really limited medical staffing and that, you know, any strain on, on the system beyond what, what is already there would basically limit the access for people with legitimate healthcare needs. And so it was really this kind of, kind of twofold thing of, of like, it could increase abuse of the system slightly. And we already don't have enough staff medical staffing to, uh, to provide, you know, the care that, that they should be providing, you know, obviously one solution to that might be to have more uh, medical staffing in, in these prisons, but that wasn't exactly uh, the discussion that was, that was taking place this week. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, because between the two of those issues, this sort of speculation about possible abuse 
um, which is an unknown. And the known issue of not having enough staff to, to handle non-abuse. Nobody, nobody in this panel said, well, you know, should, should we instead of this be, well, or should we along with this be talking about, you know, getting, get, you know, helping, helping this, this department get up to adequate medical staffing levels? Yeah, I mean, no, it, it didn't really, it didn't come up directly, but I mean, I will say that a lot of the people who are working on this bill are obviously like, are, are very aware of the, the inadequacy of, of healthcare in the prison system. You know, some of the people who spoke are involved in, in a lawsuit against uh, Angola and as well as against David Wade, but the, in the Angola lawsuit, you know, a federal judge ruled that, that the healthcare at, at Angola, which is the largest, largest prison in the state, you know, violates the Eighth Amendment, um, and they're deliberately indifferent to, to prisoners' medical needs. So, it, you know, that's obvious. People understand that that's a problem, and I think it's sort of kind of a, a bigger problem than than this copay issue. And I think at this meeting, I think try, trying to sort of weigh in, uh, wade into to the broader issue of of the lack of of healthcare resources in the prison system was kind of not the thing that they were discussing or, or wanting to discuss. Okay, so what happens next? It sounded like the sponsor of the bill and uh, some of the advocates were, were um, open to, to sort of discussing with, with the Department of Corrections, you know, any compromise. The reality is that this committee is, it's 10 Republicans and two Democrats and one independent. I think they're very much going to kind of go with whatever the Department of Corrections suggests to them on this. They're very pro-law enforcement, quite deferential to to the department, it, it seems, and, and to other law enforcement agencies, including the Sheriff's Association. Um, so I think in, in, in reality, it's, it's going to require some compromise. And, and what the department suggested was that they could reduce all co-pays to, to cap them at, at $2, which is what the lowest one is now. They said that they would be open to eliminating copays for prescriptions and then uh, sort of creating a, a, a regulation where if some if a person has, has not very much money in their account in the prison, then they could w- waive the copays for, for those people. I was just curious if there was like an overall cost. We know like how much does that cost a year for the state for prescriptions or whatever, these copays? Like how much does that actually add up to? So what... The lawyer for the department said was that last year there was $170,000 spent on medical copays. She said that in comparison, there was $17 million spent on commissary. Now, kind of the, the caveat to these numbers is, one, at some point during COVID, the department suspended medical copays. And so I'm not sure when they started requiring them again. And if that, you know, $170,000 uh was does, that re- does that represent a full year? Does that represent an average year? Yeah, exactly. right. Exactly yeah. right. And then the the other thing is that you know part of the part of the issue with the copays here is that is that some some people who are incarcerated have lots of money in their accounts. They have family members who will put you know lots and lots of money into their accounts, and they can buy things at the commissary. And the barrier to medical care is probably a little bit lower for them because they're not constantly considering, you know, whether or not two or three dollars is going to be, you know, the only money they have for for the next months or years. Um, But there are also people who aren't getting any family support and aren't getting any money um, coming into their accounts. And they really are living off the few cents they're making an hour. So 
comparing the $17 million that people spend in the commissary versus the $170,000 that people have spent on medical copays doesn't really get at that, that divide that um, advocates are, are worried about. Um, and, you know, there, there was a, someone, someone who presented at the meeting who'd been incarcerated for 25 years kind of described this way in which, you know, someone might get sick on the tier. And if there's someone who didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, outside support, sending them money, they might not decide not to see the doctor because they instead like would want a bite to eat before they go to, before they go to sleep at night. And what would happen is sometimes the, the, the guys would sort of team up and buy them food from their own accounts so that, that this one sick person could, could go to the doctor. And, you know, not only was that sort of a, uh, a generous or altruistic thing, but it was so that they didn't get sick themselves. So that mm. you know, whatever the, this person has, or does it doesn't spread, you know, through the tear and get everyone sick. Mm. Um, so that that is is sort of kind of at least one perspective on how how it plays out, you know, practically in, in prison. Okay, yeah. thanks, Nick. Thank you. You are listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, the chief operating officer at The Lens. The New Orleans Press Club just awarded eight Excellence in Journalism awards to The Lens, including first and second place for government and political reporting, and first place for this very podcast you're listening to now. The Lens is a nonprofit public media. You can tell because of the high quality of what you read each day. You can tell because of the stories and research and doggedness that we use to bring you the news that matters. And you can also tell because we ask you directly to support the service that makes such a difference in your life. Your investment supports high quality news, in-depth reporting, and connections to your neighbors and the world. Please make a contribution today at thelensnola.org. And thank you. Michael, a lot of publicity surrounding NBA legend Magic Johnson in town. He appeared with Mayor Lotoya Cantrell at several events this week, promoting a multi-million dollar deal that would create a privately owned internet provider to compete with AT&T and Cox. The deal is part of the Smart Cities project the Cantrell administration has been advocating for. What were the events like? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it was two events at, at, at uh, a rec center in New Orleans East and a, a church on Franklin Avenue. And, um, you know, both the events were, were pretty energetic, pretty celebratory in feeling. People were pretty excited to have this, you know, very famous NBA legend in town. The events, um, you know, they were, they were entitled Wi-Fi for All, and, and, and they were really focused on talking about the city's digital divide. And, and by that, you know, we, the, the term really means, you know, all the people in this city who currently can't afford uh, internet access in their homes. Um, you know, it's been a focus for a long time in the city. And, and yeah, during these events, it, it was a lot of talk about that issue and, and how this um, project might, might, you know, impact that, that problem. Now, the reason why Magic Johnson was in town he is a co-founder of a company called JLC Infrastructure. Um, and JLC Infrastructure is one of the leading companies in this consortium, which is called Smart and Connected NOLA. And, and, and Smart and Connected NOLA 
uh, last year won a bid with the city to take on this project that, you know, kind of was a priority for Mayor Cantrell, this kind of very, very broad smart cities project. At kind of the highest level, what, what the project does is it creates a, a new internet service in the city um, that would um, compete directly with Cox and AT&T by selling subscriptions to residents and businesses. Um, and, you know, kind of the second part of this project would be using that internet access, this new network, to start setting up uh, what's referred to as smart cities technologies all around the city. Um, and again, we'll talk more about this, but, but that's generally things like smart street lights, smart uh, traffic lights, you know, general city infrastructure that you can embed with internet access and sensors that can collect more data to improve city services and, and collect more revenue. You know, again, this, this was largely a celebration. You know, there, there was kind of an underlying uh, message going out, though, because although this group has been chosen by the city through this, you know, request for proposal process, this kind of competitive bid process. What they've proposed involves a, a multi-year agreement with the city. And, and, you know, in New Orleans, a multi-year contract, a multi-year agreement um, requires approval from the city council. But it's been, you know, nearly a year um, since, since uh, uh, the city selected uh, this group to take on the project. And so far, um, the city council, I mean, the public has not seen any copy of a potential agreement. Um, there are still a lot of details, of very vital basic details about the plan that are missing, like how much the city will have to pay every year or how this plan will actually get internet access to, to people who can't currently afford it. But, you know, the message from Magic Johnson, from Cantrell to, to Johnson's business partner, a man named um, Jim Reynolds, um, you know, all of them kind of said the same thing, which is, the city council needs to get on board with this plan and basically saying, you know, if the city council puts up a big fight on this and, and, and kind of makes a big mess of this, we could lose this project entirely and that it's kind of hanging in the balance. We talked to one council member, Councilwoman Helena Moreno, you know, who basically in response to those calls is saying she does not know enough this, about this plan to get behind it. You know, I, I, she's not exactly opposed to it. But at the same time, you know, the, the request that council members start, you know, getting behind this and supporting it before they have basic financial information, you know, again, very, very basic information about the plan. Um, she just says that that that's kind of an unreasonable thing to, to request from them. And when we say we don't know about them, there's supposed to be a CEA, a cooperative endeavor agreement that the council has to agree to. The council hasn't it not only been it, it hasn't seen a copy of the draft that they're working on for the CEA. And, um, you know, from, from everything we understand, it's gotten very little information and direct conversations with the administration. Yeah, what, what uh, Councilwoman Moreno told us is, you know, we, we had reported on this proposal last year um, and, and during budget um, hearings, Moreno had brought up, you know, publicly her concerns about this project. She told me that after that, in December, she had a meeting with, with the administration, with administration officials to kind of get all of her answers question all of her questions answered on this and she said she went to the meeting and, and the administration was kind of still unable to answer these questions you know again things as basic as what is the city going to owe every year you know I, again when you're signing a contract the price of the contract is, is kind of the first important. yeah <laughs> yeah you know, uh so you know again yeah it you know it, it's shy on details it's something i've been working on 
you know, for months. And, and the reason I went to these events is because I have not had any of my questions answered by the administration. And I was hoping that at these events, you know, we'd get a little bit more detailed, but um, th there was not a lot of detail to, to be had. The timing uh, of this all is really something because to, to, so this is Thursday morning. Today, there's going to be a city council meeting. Um, and one of the major items that the council is going to be voting on in that, or a, a series of items, actually, the council is going to be voting on is a, is a series of departmental budget holds. And the reason that they're doing that is, it, it is as an accountability measure. It's to, it's to say, uh, one, there are certain departments that are underperforming. We want to see some indication that performance is going to improve uh, before we give them this money back. And two, what's relevant here is that they accuse the Cantrell administration of an unusual lack of transparency and communication with the council. So, you know, the day before this meeting happens, you know, we, we published this story that kind of seems like a case in point for that second, you know, that second complaint from the council. With the Smart Cities proposal, one of the linchpins of it has been what the Cantrell administration has been saying will address the digital divide that exists in, in New Orleans, which is anywhere between 23 to 33% of the city lacks internet connection. So they're, they're saying that this would address that, this whole, the, the broad scope of these kinds of plans will fix that issue. What are the spec, because there are no specifics on how exactly it will do that, what can you read between the lines in the proposal, how, how it might be addressed? Right, right. So, so real quick on the digital divide, I mean, the numbers that the, the administration have been uh, talking about is, you know, you know, we're looking at in the city of New Orleans, you know, uh, these the statistics appear to be from a few years ago now, but, you know, anywhere from 23 to 30 percent of, of households in New Orleans don't have Internet reliable, reliable Internet in their homes. Um, and that number jumps up to 66% when, when we're talking about low-income households. And, you know, that, that is a huge, huge problem. Like, uh, you know, let's be very, very clear, you know, that, that, that is an issue. Um, you know, MARTA has done some, some great reporting on, on the digital divide and what that meant, um, you know, during the pandemic when we had to move to, to remote learning. We know that it's, it's a huge factor in getting and holding jobs. Um, and, and we know that the digital divide in New Orleans is, is bigger than a lot of um, um, cities. Um, how this plan uh, would actually impact that has been kind of my question from the beginning, you know, um, since, since we first saw this proposal. One thing I'll say at the top is all we know about this plan, uh, for the most part, comes from the initial proposal that this consortium of, of, of businesses submitted um, when they were trying to get this contract with the city. So, so all we have is this very initial proposal that they submitted about a year ago. Um, not only was that a year ago, but they've now been in months of negotiations with the city. And so when we're talking about this, we're, we're talking about everything based off of that initial proposal, but we really don't know where the project might be at this point. Um, and so when people kind of ask me about what this project will do, um, I think it's always important to note that we don't really know. It, it could look completely different from what the proposal was. The city may have negotiated a completely different set of things that they need, different price points, and, and, and we just don't have any idea. However, since that is the information we have to go off of, that is what we, you know, and the city has continually refused to, to give us any more information. That is what we are assuming the project will be, this initial proposal. Now, 
in that initial proposal, the thing that we really wanted to highlight and the thing that really stuck out at the time was that there was a lot of language about how bad the digital divide was, you know, how this would fix it. But when you got into the mechanics of the plan, there, there wasn't anything within that. There was not anything firm to, to make sure that people, you know, who, who cannot afford Internet subscriptions now would get some type of either free or subsidized service. Um, what the, uh, the, the what the proposal does say is that, you know, there will be a revenue share, some sort of revenue share agreement between these businesses and the city uh, where the city would be able to bring in some would 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 get some of the revenue raised by selling Internet subscriptions and then advertising and data collection opportunities that kind of come with a lot of these smart cities initiatives. And the proposal suggests that if the revenue share is signed and if the city starts collecting revenue, um, then the city could choose if it wanted to use that money to subsidize internet subscriptions. Mm. But again, it's not a built in part of the subscription model. There's no kind of tiered price plan that's been put forth and the city has not committed to using that extra revenue, you know, for that purpose to subsidize internet subscriptions. And we, we have no idea how much money they'll actually get from this revenue share um, or, or how successful this project would have to be before they have enough money to actually make an impact. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the, main, that's the main thing, right? Any revenues or savings, at least just in the, in the, in the you know, the, just reading the, the proposal, um, they're not spelled out in there. I mean, you know, they, they don't even, they don't, they don't really even give, for instances, like, you know, they, 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 they're saying that uh, there will be savings to the city from this plan, specifically from the smart uh, device component, which Michael will get into in a minute, and that there will be revenues for this plan. They don't put a number on the savings. They don't put a number on the potential revenues. This whole using the subscription revenue to, 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 to uh, subsidize Internet service. They don't have suggested rates for the, for the subscription. How do, you know, how can they be confident? Are they going to be able to offer it at a rate low enough to get enough people to switch over from Cox and AT&T to the city-directed internet? We don't know. None of it's in the proposal. From what's in there, everything that could go to pay for what is supposedly the central uh, component of this plan, which is, which is getting rid of the digital divide, we have no idea about any of those numbers. Right. And, and you know, I'll add that, you know, when we saw you know, the lack of a plan in the initial proposal, um, you know, it obviously caught our attention, but at the same time, that free Wi-Fi service would not be the top priority of the businesses involved. I mean, that's not necessarily surprising. So it's not, it wasn't as surprising to see, okay, these companies didn't prioritize subsidized internet service for low-income people. However, I think why, one of the reasons I really want to write this story is that you know, it's now been months and the city just had these public events, kind of the, the launch of these events. And, you know, again, they, they labeled the events Wi-Fi for all, and they did not mention any specifics on how this would help close the digital divide. And, and you just got to imagine that if this was actually being worked into the plan by the city, right? I mean, because there could have been a world where they saw this proposal and said, it's great, except there's no built-in mechanism for subsidized Wi-Fi. And then through negotiations, added that back into it. But again, they're out here announcing this plan, had every opportunity to tell the public, to tell journalists that were asking about it, you know, how is this going to work? And there was not a single mention of, of free or subsidized Wi-Fi subscriptions the entire time. Yeah, they're trying to frame the debate. 
They're Do saying the city council votes against this. They're voting against Wi-Fi for all. This is a tactic we've seen before from this administration when it came to the library vote a couple of years ago. Uh, they tried to reframe that debate as not being about library funding, but as being about uh, funding for childhood education, even though the childhood education component of that was very small. So, you know, now we're seeing it again with this. A no vote is also a no to Magic Johnson. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so what are privacy advocates concerned about with smart cities in general? And this in particular? Yeah, so I'll zoom out a little bit just to say that, you know, the smart cities trend, um, you know, just because I haven't really fully described it, um, you know, it's basically taking all of this city infrastructure that cities have always had, whether it be streetlights or trash cans or whatever else, and it's basically putting a bunch of sensors into those uh, pieces of equipment so that they can collect data and transmit them immediately back to the city. And, and that really broadly does two things. Number one, it can help improve city services. So, um, for example, if a streetlight goes out, you can get immediately notified, and and you know that way you don't need someone driving around and checking out all the lights. Um, number two, you know the, these you know streetlights, for example, will have cameras and microphones in them that can pick up traffic patterns and other city data that can be packaged to uh, you know it was suggested that 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 data could be sold to rideshare companies uh, or insurance companies who might want, you know, uh, traffic data on the city of New Orleans for whatever reason. Now, obviously that, that comes with privacy. Any data collection comes with privacy concern. We've done a lot of reporting on the, the surveillance system here. Um, you know, the, the city's fleet of surveillance cameras is somewhere in the ballpark of 1,000 at the moment. But this project alone um, you know, we talk about, you know, it, it suggests adding 3,000 smart streetlights, for example, and every one of those streetlights will have two cameras in them, uh, at least some of them might have three. So we're talking about 6,000 cameras just on the, on the streetlight side of things um, that are going to be worked into the, you know, that are going to be under city control. So obviously, you know, again, uh, we're talking about a massive expansion of the number of cameras that the city has and is monitoring um, that's going to cause issues for, uh, uh, it's going to raise issues for, for, for privacy advocates. You know, I, I think another big part of it is that when we're talking about internet providers and the privacy that, that should be there between a customer and their internet provider, I mean, that is something that you can write books about. I mean, you can read all day long about the intricacies of, of, of what you need to do to adequately protect internet, uh, you know, subscribers. And so, you know, it's hard to even give you the, the, the top issues when it comes to this, but, you know, internet providers have leeway in terms of the data they collect and, and, and what they do with it. And, and there are a million issues surrounding that, a million little details that, you know, we have not even begun to discuss yet. So, you know, when we're talking about a, a internet subscription, an internet service that will be quote unquote city directed, you know, it just brings up a lot of questions about what data is going to be collected, how it will be used, whether it will be the property of the city, whether it will be a property of this private, you know, company that's being set up. You know, so again, when we're talking about the Internet, when we're talking about cameras and other sensors, I mean, it, 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 it's hard to even summarize the very long list of privacy issues mm -hmm. that, that come along with it. Well, yeah, I mean, and we're just, you know, keep in mind, we are just a few years out on the, you know, on the on the surveillance side of thing, that's uh, things, that's obviously a big issue. And in many ways that that becoming an issue, um, just to remind everyone, came out of an earlier smart cities proposal at a much smaller scale a couple of years ago. Um, 
that was uh, originally proposed by then councilman Jason Williams, who, after he looked into it more, kind of changed his entire position on on not only those cameras but on uh, surveillance in general. But on the data collection side, we're only a few years out from learning of you know a massive data collection, a massive data collection program that the city was doing for what has been characterized as uh, a predictive policing program, which is a very controversial thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I think just one one thing to, to kind of highlight overall with this plan is why it's so hard to talk about and, and why it's so hard to, to report on, uh, at least for me, is that it is just a massive, massive project. I mean, this is going to touch so many parts of city government it's going to touch so many parts of what the city provides to residents i mean if we were talking about changing if we were just talking about changing streetlight vendors just that alone would have a ton for us to report on you know in you know again changing the traffic signals and, and 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 putting cameras with with advanced analytics software in it just that detail of the plan alone you know, is is well worthy of, of its own reporting. But then you have to deal with this plan on a whole. And again, you're just dealing with very, very important city services. And we're talking about like changes to these services that we've never seen before. Um, and that a lot of cities have never seen before. And, and again, touching a ton of city services. So it, it can be a little overwhelming. And that's what makes, you know, the lack of detail even more frustrating. That's not even getting into that this whole this whole thing kind of came out of what has been characterized allegedly as being a kind of contract fixing scheme. Yeah, I mean, the, the other really weird part of this contract, there have been contract fixing allegations um, that, that were lodged by Cox Communications, a current internet provider who had also you know applied to, to, to have this project with the city. They have alleged that Kind of, th this was kind of a, a fix from the beginning, and, and what, what their argument is, it, it, it revolves around this consultant called Ignite Cities. And Ignite Cities, what, what they actually do is a little bit opaque, based off of what I can find online. Um, but but broadly, you know, they want to connect city governments and especially city IT departments um, to companies that are kind of doing these big smart cities projects. And 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 they helped the city kind of formulate and write. The, the request for proposals that was used for this smart city project. Now, what was not really clear at the time and, and, and you know, what these allegations now, you know, what we've learned since is that Ignite Cities has a formal partnership with both Qualcomm and JLC Infrastructure. Now, Qualcomm and JLC Infrastructure are the two leading companies on the consortium that won the smart cities RFP in New Orleans. Okay. Again, that RFP was was in part written by Ignite Cities. Now, so, Ignite Cities is not officially part of the consortium that won the RFP, um, but they have a partnership with these two companies basically to do exactly what happened in New Orleans. Ignite Cities is supposed to connect these companies to city IT departments so that they can create smart cities technology. So in this for-profit consultancy firm helps the city write this RFP on a pro bono basis. They did not charge the city. Um, and that ex actually is one of the arguments the city has told us by saying there's no conflict of interest, saying, you know, Ignite City was never a an official contractor of ours. They were just casually Helpful. helping us write this for no money at all. And, you know, we're not aware of any financial interest they have in this project. 
Um, so, you know, th this, again, this, the story we're being told is that this for-profit consultant, um, out of the goodness of their hearts, um, decided to help the city out here. Yeah, goodness of their heart. I mean, this is a for-profit business. And, and I don't know how many times you've gotten the opportunity to follow up on the city's position here, but one would think that it, you know, it would raise the question in city officials' minds of if, if we're not paying our consultant, who is paying our consultant? Because somebody's paying our consultant, presumably. Interestingly enough, the founder and, and central consultant of Ignite Cities, um, this man named George Bersiaga, um, he was actually present at last week's events where Magic Johnson was, where, the, where they were discussing this Smart Cities event. So he's still around. Um, he still seems to be involved. He still seems to have a close relationship with both uh, Cantrell and, and, the, and JLC infrastructure. So, you know, again, I, I tried to ask Mr. Bersiaga what he was doing there. Uh, he said, quote, I, I'm here to support the city of New Orleans um, and, and wouldn't give me any more comment after that. So, yeah, that's something we're going to continue to look into um, and is an important part of this. But, you know, again, this is just one of those stories. This is just a huge, massive project um, with just a million different angles to focus on. So, it, you know, I apologize for the 3,000 word story for anyone who, who went ahead and read that, but uh, it's kind of just that complicated. Uh, we'd make it shorter if we could. Yeah, and uh, just, just to get back to, to Bersiaga for a second, you know, he told, you, he told you he's here to support the city of New Orleans. So again, we are asked to believe that, and you know, maybe it's true, I have no idea. Um, but it, 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 it does seem to be something that's, that's worth some additional questions and more importantly answers that you know this this guy in the middle of a work day a weekday flies across the country from chicago to come to new orleans all all at a significant expense presumably um and he's we're, we're asked to believe that he is yet again just doing that entirely for free one last thing here is is this is also explicitly what his business does his business explicitly is forming relationships with city officials and helping develop smart cities projects that's what he does this wouldn't be like a side charity thing he did that is different from what his business is we're lucky that we have you answering asking these questions even though you get banished to uh other rooms when you do so so thank yeah. you for that all thank right you. you guys big hefty week thank you so much for your time thanks carolyn thanks carolyn bye thank you. Okay. <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Hilton. Thanks to our guests this week education reporter Marty Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>